Today is Thursday, the octave of Pentecost, and this is Father John Zolsdorf with another Pentecost podcast. Today we welcome as our guests His Holiness Pope Benedict XVI, now gloriously reigning. We'll hear his sermon for Pentecost Sunday. Also, we welcome back His Holiness Saint Pope Leo I, Pope Leo the Great, who died in 461. He will speak to us across the centuries in one of his own Pentecost sermons. Pope Leo the Great was Bishop of Rome in very difficult times in the 5th century. He became Pope in 440 and he died in 461. Now at that time, civil order was breaking down, the empire was collapsing, and more and more people turned to him, this great central figure, the Bishop of Rome, for guidance and governance, not just in spiritual matters, but also in temporal affairs, too. Uh, Leo himself did a great deal to clarify the importance of his role as the successor of Peter, and indeed as the key or indispensable figure, uh, the figure of the Bishop of Rome, for the continuation or the constitution of the church. Leo had all sorts of different spiritual and doctrinal problems that he had to deal with in Rome itself. He had to combat the false teachings of various heresies and the remnants of different pagan ideas and practices as well. Uh, in his sermons, he often goes off after the Manichees, uh, the Manichaeans, whom St. Augustine had joined in his youth and then fiercely battled during his long life in North Africa. Uh, when Augustine came to Rome on his way to Milan, he actually sought out a, the strong Manichaean community that was still there in Rome. It had some influential members. And Augustine, by that time, by the time he got to Italy, Augustine wasn't much of a convinced Manichaean. He was more interested in the references and the doors they could open. He was an ambitious young man. But the point is that the Manichaeans were still around in Rome in Leo's time, and he often preaches against them. There are all sorts of different heretical groups there. There are some Macedonians. Uh, we, can, uh, well, we can talk about them another time. But there are also some pagan customs that were continuing. And in a sense, uh, I think perhaps the sermon that we're going to hear today, uh, Sermon 81, might be in part 
a response to perhaps some pagan attitudes about the time of year that they are in around the time of your Pentecost. This sermon that we'll hear, 81, was probably preached in the year 445. And I want you to keep your ears tuned uh, as uh, you listen to Leo to how he talks about fasting. Now you might find it a little odd that Leo uh, uses the Feast of Pentecost to talk specifically uh, and so powerfully about fasting. But as you heard in the Pentecost Octave podcast in which I spoke about ember days in Leo's time, it was already the practice for a very long time to observe what he calls, in another place, the Yeunia Quatuor Temporum, the fasts of the four times or the four seasons. And, the, in fact, the week following the sermon we're going to hear, the Pentecost sermon, which came to have eventually uh, the observance of an octave, uh, this week had three days, Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday, dedicated to fasting. And Leo's going to talk about these things explicitly. These are, of course, our ember days. And when Leo talks about fasting, whether in these four fast times, like the ember days that we have now, or in Lent, or the other fast time in the autumn, he usually places great emphasis not only on the spiritual benefit for oneself, but also for the material benefit of others. Fast days and times uh, of abstinence or bodily discipline for Leo, this great bishop, this great pastor, shepherd to his people, are also about works of mercy for the poor. He always connects fasting and almsgiving. He doesn't do it quite so powerfully in this sermon that we're going to hear, although he does make the connection as he does in other times of the year, but, but still it's all there. It's, it's still part of uh, the warp and the weft of the sermon. What this fasting means uh, for the people is that they are to engage in a real fast, not a fake or a pretend fast, and then what they are supposed to do is give to the poor from their normal fare what they would have had themselves used, and not just from their excess. Well, I've got this little bit, you know, here extra that I don't need for myself. Well, let's give that to the poor. No, no. He is saying, take what you actually need for yourself and deny it to yourself and give that to the poor. And for Leo, it's a fascinating thing what he does here. Listen carefully to how he does it. He connects that to interior wisdom. And think about also how that would strengthen the bonds of society in a time when there was really a lot of upheaval. I want you also to tune your ear or listen very carefully for the gardening imagery here at the at the Sabine farm where I'm recording this Pentecost podcast we're doing all sorts of gardening and landscaping right now and uh, getting everything planted so that we can uh, in the little greenhouse so that we can get it into the ground and make the area beautiful we want good and useful plants to be growing in exactly the right place we don't want weeds we don't want weeds in the wrong places isn't it interesting that any flower even the most beautiful, even a rose, if it's in the wrong place, is really a weed. But I digress. Anyway, in ancient Rome, 
uh, remember as you're listening to this, you know, we're in the year 445, and not too far from the really, you know, pagan period, not not so long after uh, the period when there were persecutions of Christians simply because they were Christian. So there are still some pagan customs and pagan observances in Rome and certain festivals. People remember festivals at certain times of the year. Precisely at about the time that Leo is preaching this sermon, as I mentioned, in 445, so if it's Pentecost, it would have been the 27th of May. In pagan times, they would have been readying for the June observance of the what are called the Ferie Messis, or the Harvest Days. I talked about this in the podcast on Ember Days. These ancient pagan Ferie were in part the inspiration for the Christian Ember Days, but in the Christian sense, not as a time of excess or revelry so much, but in the in the great Christian context, a contrast of fasting. So keep your ears tuned for that gardening imagery and the scriptural references of enemies, an enemy, which of course is the devil, who would plant weeds uh, in the garden, put put things in uh, that would ruin the harvest to a certain extent. This is the enemy of the soul, and so fasting is a weapon against the devil who slithers in when we are not paying attention or when we get lax. Keep your tuned ear... Well, that's a lot to listen to in, in this sermon, isn't there? Keep your ear tuned also for the word uh, discipline in English. In Latin, we have learning words like doctrina and eruditio, doctrine and and uh, and learning and they lead to directly into other vocabulary words like regula and precepta rules the rule and commandments the regula fidei the rule of faith this is how the latin fathers used to speak about the deposit of faith that belief in preaching had to conform to or else it wasn't Christian and this is something that Christ gave the Apostles and the Apostles handed down especially in the oral tradition the great tradition the big T tradition which of course is guarded by Leo uh, especially guarded by Leo because he's Peter now Leo connects all these things the uh, er, doctrina and eruditio and regula and precepta he connects them of course with the descent of the Holy Spirit and the apostles but also with fasting that discipline of the body and the spirit which he talks about through this sermon in other words what what's going on here I'll just give you a glimpse into what he's doing you learn Christian wisdom through fasting and almsgiving Leo even talks about sapientia interioris, the wisdom of the inner man, the, the man deep down in his soul. It's a wisdom that goes beyond mere scientia or knowledge. Now, he doesn't use the word scientia in here, but, but that's what he's doing. He's contrasting sapientia and just mere knowledge or scientia. We can know things, but we 
might know them without the deeper knowledge, which is wisdom. You know, we can learn our catechism and learn all the formulas and so forth, but then there's a deeper knowledge, something which is wisdom. It goes far beyond just knowledge. And in a sense, Leo is saying that we can't be truly Christian in the full interior sense of Christian without fasting, not just because faith without works is dead, but because of what fasting does and what this discipline does for our deep understanding of the tenets of the faith, about who we are as a person able then also to receive them. And also, uh, toward the end, listen to how Leo, so very conscious of himself as Peter's successor, very conscious of his relationship of the people of his church in Rome, the relationship they have to Peter and the tomb of the apostle is in their midst. And so he makes reference to the people coming back to the tomb of Peter, the very tomb he is speaking next to, speaking directly over in the ancient Constantinian Basilica. So without any further delay, things to listen for. Here is Pope Leo the Great, sermon number 81 for Pentecost, probably preached on the 27th of May in the year 445. It's fairly short, so we can have both the Latin and the English today. Among all the precepts of the Apostles' teaching, dearly beloved, which have come to us from the fountain of divine knowledge, there is no doubt that with the Holy Spirit rushing unto the leaders of the Church, they received this discipline first of all. They were to lay the foundations of all virtues by the observance of a holy fast. It would benefit them much for following the commands of God if the Christian soldiers would fortify themselves against all the allurements of sin by the sanctification of self-restraint. Since the first cause of sin crept in from the enjoyment of food, what more salutary gift of God does our redeemed liberty use than that it, which did not know how to restrain itself from forbidden things, now knows how to restrain itself from lawful things? Every creature of God is good, and nothing ought to be rejected which is received with the giving of thanks. We were not created to seek out all the riches of the world with a foul and shameless greed, as if what we may have we must not refrain from. May God be praised who gave so much to the use of human beings, but let the rational soul realize that greater delights have been given to the spirit than to the flesh. When any hear it said to them by the spirit, Do not go after your own lusts, restrain yourself from your own will, 
they must understand that they are to pursue the virtue of moderation against everything that entices the bodily senses. It is through virtue that the wisdom of the interior human being is increased, while the pleasure of the exterior is lessened. There is not the same energy in the heart under the burden of food as under the light weight of the fast, nor can satiety create the same feeling that moderation does. When the flesh, tempting the spirit, is overcome by spiritual desire, our health becomes free, and our freedom healthy, so that the flesh is ruled by the judgment of the spirit, and the spirit by the help of God. From the resurrection of the Lord to the coming of the Holy Spirit, fifty days have been completed, which were spent in the joy of this special feast. The present time invites us, dearly beloved, to this service, that we should return to the remedy of the fasts. It could happen, by chance, from the opportunity for more pleasant relaxations, that the habit of an agreeable life should fall into some faults of negligence. The dust of our flesh, unless it undergoes constant cultivation, from sloth and ease quickly brings forth thorns and briars, and in a worthless harvest will give fruit not to be put into the barn, but to be burned by fire. As the Lord says, any plant which my Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. We must guard the goodness of every sprout and seed that we receive from the planting of the Supreme Gardener. We must watch with the greatest care that no gifts of God be damaged by the deceit of a jealous enemy, and that no forest of sin should grow in the garden of virtues. Nothing is stronger for avoiding this evil than almsgiving and fasting. Self-restraint kills off the desires of the flesh, and the practice of mercy multiplies the fruits of spiritual desires. For this reason we give solemn warning to your kind hearts that we should fast on Wednesday and Friday, wishing to be cleansed from the sordidness of our sins through discipline of the body and works of mercy. On Saturday, however, let us celebrate the vigil with blessed Peter the Apostle. By his merits and prayers we believe that we shall be helped in such a way that the mercy of God may be with your fasts and your prayers. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Inter omnia dilectissimi apostolice instituta doctrine, quae ex divine eruditionis fonte manarunt, dubium non est influente in ecclesiae principes spiritu sancto, hanc primum ab eis observantiam fuisse conceptam. 
ut sancti observatione iei omnium virtutum regulas incoarent quia multum ad precepta dei exequenda pro deset si christiana militia contra omnia incentiva viciorum continentiae se sanctificatione muniret cum enim per in lecebram cibi in repserit prima causa peccati quo salubriore dei munere utitur redempta libertas quam ut noverit abstinere concessit que frenare se nescivit a vetitis omnis quidem creatura dei bonast et nihil est abicendum quod cum gratiarum actione percipitur sed non ad hoc creati sumus ut veda et impudenti aviditate omnes mundi copias expectamus quam quod licet sumi non liceat pretermiti laudator deus qui hominum usui tam multa donavit sed agnoscat rationalis animus maiores delicias mentidatas esse quam carni ut cum audit sibi per spiritum sanctum dici post concupiscentias tuas non eas era voluntate tua vetare intelegat sibi contra omnia que sensibus corporis blandiuntur temperantiae sectandum esse virtutem perquam dum exterioris hominis voluptas minuitur sapientia interioris augetur non enimidem cordis vigore sub oneri cibi qui sub levitate iuniii nec eumdem sensum potest satietas generare quem parcitas quia cum caro concupiscens adversus spiritum spiritali cupiditate superatur libera obtinetur sanitas et sana libertas ut et caro mentis judicio et mens dei regatur auxilio ad hanc ergo nos utilitatem dilectissimi presens tempus invitat ut a resurrectione domini usque ad adventum spiritus sancti quinquaginta diebus emensis quos in letitia precipue festivitatis exegimus ad iuniorum remedia concuramus ne forte per occasionem licentiae blandioris aliquas negligentiae culpas delectabilium usus inciderit terra enim carnis nostre nisi adsiduis fuerit sub acta culturis cito de seniotio spiras tribulosque producit et partu de generi david fructum non horeis inferendum sed ignibus concremandum dicente domino omnis plantatio quam non plantavi pater meus eradicabitur custodienda ergo nobis est omnium germinum seminumque generositas quam exumi agricole plantatione concepimus et vigili solicitudine providendum ne dei munera aliqua in videntis inimici fraude violentur et in paradiso virtutum concrescat silva viciorum 
ad declinandum autem hoc malum, nihil est potentius, elemosinis atque iuniis, dum et carnales cubiditates continentia necat, et desiderium spiritalium fructus misericordiae cultura multiplicat. Unde caritatem vestram solemniter admonemus, ut per castigationem corporis et per opera pietatis mundari ab omnium peccatorum sorde cupientes, quarta et sexta feria iunemus. Sabato autem apud Beatissimum Petrum Apostolum Vigilias celebremus, cuius nos meritis et orationibus ita per omnia credimus adjuandos. Ut misericordia Dei et iuniis nostris adsit et votis per Christum Dominum nostrum. That was Pope Leo the Great's sermon, 81 for Pentecost, preached in 445. It would have been the 27th of May. Now, did you hear how in that sermon Leo has a very sound understanding of human nature? He is at the same time very confident that the people can actually undertake what he is admonishing. After all, it's already an established custom in the Church of Rome to fast on these ember days, the uh, what we call them now ember days, the uh, Wednesday and Friday and Saturday. But he's also fairly strong in his warnings about what happens when people get lax, as surely they have been maybe for a while during the post-Easter time, the, the very long fast up to Easter, and then they were able to kind of cut loose for a while. For 50 days, he talks about 50 days, we've been We've been celebrating, now it's time to get serious again. So he's really kind of a realist. And at the same time, uh, he's a, he really understands human nature very well. He has a healthy, maybe just a healthy share of pessimism, but also he's very optimistic that people will rise to the occasion if he presents the challenge to them. And of course, Leo, uh, as I've, I've brought up, uh, Leo mentions the Wednesday and the Friday of that week, as well as the Saturday. Those are precisely the ember days we observe in the older traditional calendar of the Roman Church, where you're in that ember week now, along with the octave of Pentecost. And uh, this wonderful tradition of our ancient Roman calendar has now been happily given a kind of a new lease on life again through Pope Benedict's great gift of Symborum Pontificum. These observances of these days certainly can help us rebuild our deeper Catholic identity, and of course I think that's what Pope Benedict is doing. I think Benedict has a martial plan for the Church to rebuild Catholic identity after the devastation that it has experienced over the last decades or so. And 
one of the ways to do this is to reestablish some of these customs that can only come with the revival of a liturgical calendar. So even though the old liturgical calendar that goes with the 1962 Missal probably needs some adjustments, we need to be able to add new saints to it and perhaps, perhaps here and there, shift some of the dates around a little bit, maybe just to coordinate the calendars a little bit. We certainly shouldn't be tinkering with things like the pre-Lenten Sundays or the observance of the Pentecost octave for Pete's sake, eliminating that was just crazy. Or we need also the rogation days and ember days and all these beautiful things. These are part of who we are, the warp and weft of who we are as war Roman Catholics. And Eastern Catholics also have very, very similar customs. And they draw us both together when we're on the same page with the same attitude, doing the same sorts of things. God bless Pope Benedict and the great gift of Summorum Pontificum. Let us now welcome that same Pope Benedict XVI, now gloriously reigning, successor of Peter, vicar of Christ, servant of the servants of God. We're going to listen to his Pentecost sermon from this year. Over 1,500 years later, Benedict is at the tomb of Peter. 
In a new basilica, the old Constantinian basilica was torn down after a thousand years of service to make way for the new basilica that we marvel at today, but the tomb of Peter is still there, and Peter is preaching there yet in the person of Pope Benedict. Now in this Pentecost sermon, keep your ears tuned to how Benedict will speak of Catholicity, the Catholicity of the Church. There is a sine qua non condition operating in Benedict's mind. To be a part of the universal church, you have to have certain characteristics. Now, he's not looking for uniformity here, but the church has to be unified. Not in uniformity, but in union. There can be multiplicity in the unity. And what Benedict is getting at here, I think, is that diversity can and must be respected. But the role of Rome in the Christian church must be respected too. Now, just as the way Pope Leo often focuses on the figure of Peter and himself as Peter, Pope Benedict is talking while sitting over Peter's tomb and he talks about God's design, about how God brought the church to Rome, and how Rome was the center of the whole world. And so in the whole Christian sphere of things, it's part of God's providential design that we all have a relationship to Rome, that is, to the Sea of Peter, and to Peter's successor in that sea, that sea where Peter and Paul died, and where Paul came. See, it's not just that he died there, it's that he came there, and he makes that uh, connection in, in a sermon, Pope Benedict does. He goes so far as to say that a community which is Christian cannot even really be considered a church if it doesn't have this relationship. He even goes a little farther. He says that the Catholic Church is, uh, for the fact of what it is, it's the continuation of the chosen people. I suppose, in a sense, uh, you could conclude that even for, for Jews to be Jews and to continue to be, in that fuller sense, the chosen people, they also should have that defining relationship with Rome and with Peter, who continues to be faithful to Christ's mission to teach, govern, and sanctify through Holy Mother Church, which is the continuation of, of, of God's chosen ones. So keep your ears tuned for those things, and let's hear Pope Benedict now, his sermon for Pentecost Sunday of our Year of Salvation 2008. Dear brothers and sisters, the account of the event of Pentecost that we have heard in the first reading is placed by St. Luke at the beginning of the Acts of the Apostles. The second chapter is introduced with these words. When the time for Pentecost was fulfilled, they were all in one place together. 
These words refer to the previous chapter in which Luke described the little group of disciples that assiduously gathered in Jerusalem after Jesus' ascension into heaven. It is a description that is rich in details. The place where they lived, the cenacle, is an environment in the upper room. The eleven apostles are listed by name, and the first three are Peter, John, and James, the pillars of the community. Already integrated into this new family, no longer based on family bonds, but on faith in Christ. The total number of persons, which was about 120, a multiple of the twelve of the Apostolic College, clearly alludes to this new Israel. The group constitutes an authentic kahal, an assembly on the model of the first covenant the community convoked to hear the voice of the Lord and to walk in his ways. The book of Acts emphasizes that all of them devoted themselves with one accord to prayer. Prayer, therefore, is the principal activity of the nascent church. It is through prayer that she receives her unity from the Lord and allows herself to be guided by his will. As the decision to cast lots for one to take Judas' place shows. This community found itself gathered together again in the same place, the Cenacle, on the morning of the Jewish Feast of Pentecost, a feast of the Covenant, in which there was commemorated the event on Sinai where, through Moses, God proposed that Israel be his property among all the nations to be a sign of his holiness. According to the book of Exodus, that ancient covenant was accompanied by a terrifying sign of power on the part of the Lord. Mount Sinai, one reads there, was all wrapped in smoke, for the Lord came down upon it in fire. The smoke rose from it as though from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. We find the elements of wind and fire again at the Pentecost of the New Testament, but without the resonances of fear. In particular, the fire takes the form of tongues that come to rest upon all the disciples who were all full of the Holy Spirit, and on account of that outpouring began to speak in other languages. We have here the community's true baptism with fire, a kind of new creation. At Pentecost, the church is not constituted by a human will, but by the power of the Spirit of God. And it immediately appears how the Spirit gives life to a community that is at the same time one and universal, thus overcoming the curse of Babel. Only the Spirit, in fact, which creates unity in love and in the reciprocal acceptance of diversity, can liberate humanity from the constant tension of an earthly will to power that wants to dominate and to make everything uniform. Societas Spiritus, Society of the Spirit, this is what St. Augustine calls the Church in one of his sermons. But already before him, St. Irenaeus formulated a truth that I would like to recall here. Where the Church is, there is the Spirit of God, and where the Spirit of God is, there is the Church and every grace, and the Spirit is truth. To distance yourself from the Church is to reject the Spirit, 
and thus to exclude yourself from life. Beginning with the event of Pentecost, this connubium, or marriage, is manifested between the Spirit of Christ and his mystical body, that is, the Church. I would like to reflect on a particular aspect of the Holy Spirit, on the intertwining of multiplicity and unity. The second reading speaks about this, treating of the harmony of the different charisms and the communion of the same Spirit. But already in the passage from Acts that we have listened to, this intertwining reveals itself with extraordinary evidence. In the event of Pentecost, it is made clear that multiple languages and different cultures belong to the Church. They can understand and make each other fruitful. St. Luke clearly wants to convey a fundamental idea, namely, in the act itself of her birth, the Church is already Catholic, universal. She speaks all languages from the very beginning, because the gospel that is entrusted to her is destined for all peoples, according to the will and the mandate of the risen Christ. The Church that is born at Pentecost is not above all a particular community, the Church of Jerusalem, but the universal Church that speaks the language of all peoples. From her, other communities in every corner of the world will be born, particular churches that are all and always actualizations of the one and only Church of Christ. The Catholic Church is therefore not a federation of churches, but a single reality. The universal church has ontological priority. A community that is not Catholic in this sense would not even be a church. In this regard, it is necessary to add another aspect, that of the theological vision of the Acts of the Apostles in respect of the journey of the church from Jerusalem to Rome. Luke notes that among the peoples represented in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, there are also foreigners from Rome. At that time Rome was still distant, foreign for the nascent church. It was a symbol of the pagan world in general. But the power of the Holy Spirit will guide the steps of the witnesses to the ends of the earth, to Rome. The Acts of the Apostles ends precisely when Paul, by providential design, arrives at the empire's capital and proclaims the gospel there. Thus the journey of God's word begun in Jerusalem arrives at its goal because Rome represents the whole world and thus incarnates the Lucan idea of Catholicity. The universal church is realized, the Catholic church, which is the continuation of the chosen people and makes its history and mission her own. At this point, and to conclude, John's Gospel offers us a word which accords very well with the mystery of the Church created by the Spirit. The word spoken twice by the risen Jesus when he appears in the midst of the disciples in the cenacle on Easter evening, Shalom, peace to you, the expression shalom is not a simple greeting. It is much more. It is the gift of the promised peace, and is won by Jesus with the price of his blood. It is the fruit of this victory, 
and his struggle against the spirit of evil. It is thus a peace not as given by the world, but as God alone can give it. On this feast of the spirit of the church, we would like to thank God for having given to his people, chosen and formed from all nations, the inestimable gift of peace, of his peace. At the same time, we renew the awareness of the responsibility connected with this gift. The Church's responsibility to constitutionally be a sign and an instrument of the peace of God for all peoples. I tried to be a conveyor of this message when I recently went to the headquarters of the United Nations to speak to the representatives of the nations. But one must not only think of these summits. The Church realizes her service to the peace of Christ, above all, in her ordinary presence and action among men, with the preaching of the gospel and with the signs of love and mercy that accompany it. Among these signs, the sacrament of reconciliation must naturally be emphasized, the sacrament that the risen Christ instituted at the same time that he gave his disciples the gift of his peace and his spirit. As we heard in the passage from the Gospel, Jesus breathed upon his disciples and said, Receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you forgive are forgiven them, and whose sins you retain are retained. How important and unfortunately how insufficiently understood is the gift of reconciliation that brings peace to hearts. Christ's peace spreads only through the renewed hearts of men and women who have been reconciled and made themselves servants of justice, ready to spread peace in the world only with the force of truth, without compromising with the mentality of the world, because the world cannot give Christ's peace. This is how the Church can be a ferment of that reconciliation that comes from God. She can do this only if she remains docile to the Spirit and bears witness to the Gospel, only if she carries the cross like Jesus and with Jesus. This is precisely what the saints of every age testify to. In light of this word of life, dear brothers and sisters, May the prayer that today we address to God in spiritual union with the Virgin Mary become ever more fervent and intense. May the Virgin who listens, the Mother of the Church, obtain for our community and for all Christians a renewed outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the Paraclete. Emite spiritum tuum et creabuntur et renovavis faciem terre. Send forth your spirit and everything will be recreated, and you will renew the face of the earth. Amen. That was His Holiness Pope Benedict XVI, now gloriously reigning on Pentecost Sunday in 2008. 
speaking in the Basilica of St. Peter, right over Peter's tomb. And I would call to your attention uh, as a as a way of fleshing this out a little bit, what my, my previous comments were about these characteristics that a group must have in order for it to be a church. I'd call your back to your attention a doctrinal note that was issued last year in 2007 on the feasts of St. Peter and Paul, very appropriately. And this doctrinal note is pertinent here because it addresses some aspects of what a church truly is. And uh, the doctrinal note was called Responses to Some Questions Regarding Certain Aspects of the Doctrine on the Church. It was signed by Cardinal Leveda, and it was issued at the command of Pope Benedict himself. And uh, as I said, there are five questions, and it's the fifth which immediately interests me. So here is that question, the fifth, with its response. Why do the texts of the Council and those of the Magisterium since the Council not use the title of Church with regard to those Christian communities born out of the Reformation of the 16th century? Response According to Catholic doctrine, these communities do not enjoy apostolic succession in the sacrament of orders, and are, therefore, deprived of a constitutive element of the Church. These ecclesial communities, which specifically because of the absence of the sacramental priesthood have not preserved the genuine and integral substance of the Eucharistic mystery, cannot, according to Catholic doctrine, be called churches in the proper sense. Now what's interesting about this is the echo that it has, the way it resonates with how Pope Benedict is speaking in his Pentecost sermon. He's laying down parameters about what it means to be a church. Not just any group can be called a church. There are certain characteristics they must have. For example, if you don't have apostolic succession, you're not properly speaking a, a, a church. And you can't have apostolic succession if you don't have sacramental priesthood. Not just the priesthood of the baptized, you have to have sacramental priesthood. Because if you don't have sacramental priesthood, you can't have the Eucharistic mystery. You can't have the Eucharist. And all these things are constitutive elements of the church. And any church or any group that lacks these things cannot properly be called a church. But what Pope Benedict is doing very, very subtly in Pentecost is he's also working in here not just apostolic succession and not just sacramental priesthood and not just the Eucharist, which some churches do actually have, you know, for example, the Orthodox churches. He's talking also about the relationship we have to have with the See of Rome which is the center of unity that permits the proper kind of diversity of, of Christian expressions. It's very interesting that he spoke this homily, and he spoke those things, uh, with the, uh, the Armenian patriarch uh, present there at the Pentecost Mass. It's very interesting what, what Pope Benedict is doing. He's not drawing back from stating things very clearly so that people must reflect on them. 
In any event, I caught the echo or the resonance between this doctrinal note and Pope Benedict's sermon, and I thought I would share it with you. Finally, let us turn again to the Holy Spirit on this Pentecost Thursday in the octave of Pentecost. Oremus. Concede quesimus omnipotens Deus, sanctum do spiritum votis promereri sedudis, coatinus eus gratia, et ab omnibus liberemur tentationibus, et peccatorum nostrorum indulgentiam percipire meriamur, Per Christum Dominum Nostrum. Amen. Grant, we beseech thee, Almighty God, that we may so please thy Holy Spirit by our earnest entreaties, that we may, by his grace, both be freed from all temptations, and merit to receive the forgiveness of our sins. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. that's it for today. I'm very grateful for the feedback that uh, many of you have posted on the blog about these Pentecost podcasts. Thanks for those comments. Some of them very, very kind. I appreciate them very much, and you have inspired me to keep this little series going. Folks, as long as I get good feedback, as long as I have a sense that someone out there is listening to these things, I'll make them. So thank you very much for those good comments, and I appreciate them very much, as I would also appreciate your continued prayers. Come and visit us at the blog. If you're new to these podcasts, you might know that I have a blog. WDTPRS.com is the address. Whiskey Delta Tango. Papa Romeo Sierra.com. That's what does the prayer really say. Or if you want to do a Google search, you'll find me pretty easily just by putting in Father Z. Thanks a lot. Please pray for me as I will for you.